We're going to read this morning from Genesis chapter 39, just a, a very short section. Genesis 39, verses 20 to 23, and then we'll have uh, a time of prayer before the message this morning. So here's what the scripture says in Genesis 39, verses 20 through 23. The words are up on the screen, or you can follow along in your copy of scripture. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there he was in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This summer, we're going through our favorite stories. Our favorite stories are all of the stories of uh, this uh, summer over the next uh, few months are Bible stories that you guys have sent in to us and said, hey, this is one of my favorite Bible stories. So this morning, is the story of Joseph. And uh, before we get into the story of Joseph, I want to ask you this question because Joseph is at the end of the book of Genesis, right? What is the book of Genesis about? Think about it. What is the book of Genesis about? So you can think about it. You know, what is it? There's a number of things that occur in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you've thought about well, what's the book about. It is a book written by Moses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is it about creation? Is it about God making everything? Is it about a big flood? Is it about Noah and a, and a big boat, a big ark? Is it about Abraham? Is it about Abraham? Maybe it's about Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Maybe it's about getting a wife by working for seven years and then working for seven more, for seven more years for the actual wife you wanted. Maybe it's about breeding sheep by having them stand in front of differently colored sticks. Maybe it's about Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what is the book of Genesis about? You ever thought about that? Well, let me put it this way. The story of Joseph's life is Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. That's nearly 25% of the book of Genesis. We're going to cover nearly 25% of the book of Genesis this morning. We're going to do it real fast. We're going to skip a lot of details. But the story of Joseph is 25% of the book of Genesis. Now, we're skipping Genesis 38. It's not about Joseph. It's about Judah and him having some children, and I'm thankful Genesis 38 wasn't anybody's favorite Bible story. You can read that on your own at home. Do not read it to your children or grandchildren, unless you're prepared to edit on the fly, if you've done that before. So Joseph is 25% of the book of Genesis, and, and it's at the end of the book. Now, what we need to understand about literature in general, but especially Hebrew literature, is something we uh, see a lot, which is the emphasis of the beginning and the end of a passage or of a book. So the end of a book, often like any book that you've probably read, is the, one of the most important, important parts of the book. If you're reading a mystery book, would you skip the last chapter? Yeah, no, because that's where you find out what's, what actually happened. What has this all been about? You read the last chapter, and what do you do? Oh... Well, that's Genesis 2. We get to Genesis 37 and we go, 
Oh, I see. So Genesis, what is Genesis about? To some degree, we need to understand what's going on in the life of Joseph and what God is trying to communicate through the life of Joseph. And that tells us a lot about what Genesis is about. So here is what I'm going to say the life of Joseph uh, is about, at least by way of a title this morning, God Saves Israel. God Saves Israel. So in Genesis 37, we pick up the story. This is where we first sort of meet Joseph in a formal way. He is 17 years old in Genesis 37. Joseph, of course, is one of the youngest sons of Jacob. What's special about Joseph and his younger brother Benjamin is they are sons of Rachel, his favorite wife, Leah, his not-so-favored wife, and then he has two other women he's had children by, the maidservants of Rachel and Leah. He loves Joseph and Benjamin in particular because they are sons of his favored wife, and they are the last two sons that he had, of course, Rachel lost her life giving birth to Benjamin. So Joseph is his, is his favorite. In fact, we uh, see that he is favored. He is given a special article of clothing, a multicolored uh, robe that he wears around as uh, sort of a symbol that he is Jacob's favorite. Now, you remember who Jacob is. Jacob, of course, is the son of Isaac. And Isaac was, of course, the son of Abraham. And Abraham, of course, was the one who received God's covenant promise You will have this land and you will be a a people more numerous than sand on the shores and more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Jacob, of course, if you remember, his name was changed by God. And what was his name uh, given to him by God? His name was Israel. So the people of Israel are the sons of Israel. That is Jacob. Abraham had other sons, including a son named Ishmael. Isaac had other sons, including a son named Esau, the sons of Jacob are Israel, and Joseph was his favored son, his second to last son, and Joseph had a couple of dreams. One day he shares his dreams with his brothers. Joseph, at the beginning of the story at least, doesn't appear too bright. He says, listen, I had this dream, and our wheat was in the field, and all of your wheat was bowing down to my wheat. And the brothers were really furious at this because everybody knew what this dream meant. It meant he had a dream that indicated the brothers would bow down to him. And their answer was, I don't think so. You're an idiot. He didn't like this at all. Now, we need to remember a dream. If you have a dream, you wake up this morning, you say, man, I had the weirdest dream. I was eating marshmallows. And when I woke up, my pillow was gone. And... (laughs) and, And we don't think anything of it. Back then, if you had a dream, it was a big deal. Back then, the people assumed that when they were having a dream, a vivid dream that they remembered, that God was probably trying to tell them something. And this was a big deal, and they were really offended that he would have this dream, and and they hated him all the more because of it. Then he has another dream. He has a dream the sun, moon, and the stars are uh, bowing down to him. And he tells the dream this time to his whole family. And this time, not only are his brothers offended, his father Jacob is offended. He says, what's wrong with you? You think we're all going to bow down to you? Knock it off. They were really offended by it. His brothers hated him and they nursed a grudge. One day the brothers were out uh, with their sheep and, and Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers because at one time, point earlier he had given them a bad report. So Jacob knew at least he would tell the truth if not in a snotty old fashion. So he goes out and he finds his brothers and his brothers hatch a plan. It's a simple plan. Let's kill him. 
Dad's not here. They're a long way off. Let's kill him. His brothers come to his defense, including Reuben. And so they they decide not to kill him right away. They throw him into a cistern. This is a compartment that's dug into the earth and maybe lined with clay or plaster so it would hold water during the rainy season. And then you would water your sheep out of it. These would be scattered throughout the area that shepherds would work. So they chucked him into a cistern and proceeded to eat their lunch. And as they're eating, they're discussing what they're going to do. Reuben uh, heads off, and who knows what he's up to. And some, some Ishmaelites come by, some traders come by. Ishmaelites, remember who Ishmael is. He's that other son of Abraham. So they're sort of related to the people of Israel, but not really, and they really feuded for most of the history. Judah, probably to save Joseph's life, decides, you know what, let's sell him. Why should we kill him? Then we don't get anything out of it. Then we got to bury a body. It's just pain. Why don't we just sell the guy? Then at least we get some coin. Everybody's like, hey, that seems like a good idea. So they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, who then take him to Egypt. The brothers, what they do is they take Joseph's multicolored coat. They rip it up and make it look kind of gross. They kill a sheep, dip it in the blood, and they take it home, and they hand it to Jacob and say, hey, is this, uh, is this Joseph's? We don't know. And, jo- and Jacob realizes, at least in his mind, Joseph is dead. He was mauled by a wild animal. So Joseph then is sold into slavery in Egypt to a high official named Potiphar. So here's how the story starts. 17-year-olds, Joseph is favored by his father and ends up in a cistern. And he's sold into slavery and goes to Potiphar's house. What happens, though, in Potiphar's house? The Bible tells us, Genesis 39, the Lord was with him. And everything that Joseph put his hand to was blessed by God. And so whenever he went out to work in the field, the crops would grow. Whenever he worked on the house, the repairs would go really well. Whenever he worked with an animal, it would get healthy. Whenever he worked with the money, there would be lots of it. Whenever he worked with the food, there was lots of food. Everything Joseph did went really well. And Potiphar said, I've got an idea. If I put him in in charge of everything, everything will go well. And that's exactly what happened. And so Joseph now, because the Lord was with him, was favored by Potiphar. Potiphar was married. We don't know much about Potiphar's wife other than she thought Joseph was well built. That's what the Bible says. Young guy, he had a, as, a, as one movie uh, scriptwriter said, he had, a, he had a nine pack. He didn't have a six pack, a nine pack. He was ripped, he was well formed, handsome guy. Again, we're not sure about how bright he is at this point, but maybe he's getting smarter over the course of time. She's not interested in his brains anyway. So he's coming into the house, and what she's doing on a daily basis is proposing to him that they sleep together. And his answer to her is a simple answer. Listen, your husband has put me in charge of everything. The only thing he concerns himself with in his house is the food he eats, and the only thing he has withheld from me in his house is you, and then importantly, this is what he says, how could I sin against, who's he say, Potiphar? No. How could I sin against the Lord in doing this thing? He knew the Lord was with him, and he knew his, uh, his behavior with Potiphar's wife was coming under the scrutiny of God himself. 
And so he said no to Potiphar's wife, not because he didn't want to sleep with her, not because uh, he was celibate per se. He certainly was, but uh, he was a normal guy. But he didn't want to sin against the Lord in this thing, regardless of what the situation was. The Bible says day after day after day. Every day that he was working, she was proposing to him that they sleep together. Finally, one day he went in to do his work and there was no other workers in the house and she proposed to him strongly, come to bed with me. And he fled from the house, leaving in her hand his garment. So she hatched a plan. This favored one who wasn't going to do things her way was going to pay for it. When her husband came home, she said, look, this Hebrew that you brought into our house, you have come to make sport of me. He came in to assault me, and he wanted to sleep with me. And when I shouted and screamed, he ran away, and I kept his coat here in my hand. It was a complete line and complete fabrication. What's Potiphar think? I don't know. The cynical side of me says, yeah, like this is Potiphar's first rodeo down this road. And the reason I say this, that is this. What should Potiphar have done with Joseph? If you were Potiphar... What would you have done with Joseph if he tried to assault your spouse in your home? And you were Potiphar, he was an official. What would you have done? I would have killed him. Nice and slow. Right? But Potiphar doesn't do that. He throws him in jail. And it just makes me wonder. I don't know what was going on Potiphar's mind. It just makes me wonder. Why did he spare Joseph? My guess might be, this is just my guess, that somewhere in the back of his mind he goes, Oh, she's up to it again. I don't want to kill the guy. But I don't know. Either way, what we have is the same thing that happened in the first part of the story. Joseph is favored, then he is hated, and then where does he end up? In the pit. Later on, in, uh, later on we're going to discover that this prison is described as a pit. When he's called out to go see Pharaoh, it says he was called out of the pit. So again, same kind of story arc favored status, then he is hated, and then he finds himself in a pit, in a prison. But then what does the Bible tell us about Joseph in this pit, this prison, in Genesis 40, the most important part? What does it tell us? The Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph was blessed in the... I have an aunt. He's gone. I'm sorry, I I would love to have said I'm so professional you would have not noticed that, but... No way I couldn't share that with you. The Lord was with Joseph and he blessed him and he was successful in the prison. Now, you might say, I don't care how successful I would be in a prison. There is no way that that is going to be called hashtag blessed. You're still in, you're still in prison. But the Bible tells us the Lord was with him and he was successful in the prison. And the keeper of the prison put him in charge of the whole prison. There wasn't anything going on in the prison that wasn't under Joseph's direct supervision. Two people were thrown into prison with Joseph, the cupbearer to Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's baker. The cupbearer is the one who would drink Pharaoh's wine and then hand it to him and maybe sample his food and hand it to him. And if the food was poisoned, the cupbearer would die and Pharaoh would not. His job was to not die. And if he did die, then he saved Pharaoh's life. That was his whole job. Hand Pharaoh his drink and food, sample a little bit of it to make sure it wasn't poison. The baker's job, what was the bake? I mean, how complicated is this? Make bread. 
I don't know what you have to do as a cupbearer or a baker to get thrown into prison. A cupbearer, maybe he wasn't sampling the food properly. I don't know. The cupbearer makes sense. He's sort of an official part of the security team. The baker, I don't know what you do as a baker to get thrown into prison. Okay? And of course, this prison, we must remember, is much like that prison in the Count of Monte Cristo, Chateau d'If. You don't go to this prison because you are guilty. You go to this prison because you are not. There was no trial for Joseph. There was likely no trial for the baker or the cupbearer. Just throw them in the pit. They're annoying. Each of these two have a dream. Remember, the story started out with dreams. The cupbearer has a dream. And the baker has a dream. The cupbearer has a dream. He's grabbing grapes again. And the, and the baker has a dream. He's got bread on his head, and there's birds eating it. And they come, and they're, they're talking about this dream. And Joseph said, what are you guys talking about? They looked really distraught. Well, we had these dreams. We don't know what they mean. Remember, if you have a dream, I mean, something's being communicated to you. And Joseph says, well, tell me. I mean, God is the interpreter of dreams. I, yeah, tell me about them. See, what, see if God tells us what to mean. And they tell him the dream. And Joseph said, oh, these are very simple. God has told me what these dreams mean. The cupbearer, you, your head will be lifted up, and you will be restored to Pharaoh's side. And the cupbearer was like, oh, that sounds great. The, the baker then says, well, tell me, tell me, what does my dream mean? And Joseph says, your head will also be lifted up to be killed. You will be hanged. And he tells the cupbearer in particular, listen, cupbearer, I didn't do anything to end up in this pit. When you get to Pharaoh, will you please remember me and plead my case? few days later, exactly what Joseph uh, said would happen did happen. The cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh's sides. He once again handed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. The baker, his head was lifted up and he was executed. And what did the cupbearer do for Joseph? Threw him in the pit. Didn't throw him into a new pit. Fortunately, he didn't have to, ch- he didn't have to move this time in this part of the story. He just simply forgot about Joseph. He just forgot. How could he forget? Remember, his whole job is holding a cup of wine. He forgot. Joseph was forgotten. Two years go by and Pharaoh has some dreams. Dreams are coming up again. Pharaoh has two dreams. Number one, there's, he has a dream of seven cows. Big fat cows. I mean big fat cows. Cows that when you look at them in the field, you say, I want to eat that cow. And then there are seven scrawny old cows. Cows that when you see them, that say, I want to be vegan. Those scrawny old cows eat the big fat cows, but then they're still scrawny. Then he sees some grain, big grain, big fruitful ears of grain. I don't know if it's corn or wheat, it doesn't matter. Then some scrawny old blighted grain comes out, and those blighted grains eat the big grains. And you say, well, grain doesn't have a mouth. Haven't you ever had one of these dreams? Where when you're, when you're having the dream, it makes perfect sense. Well, of course the grain is eating the grain. Of course, that makes perfect sense. Then you wake up. Wait, grain doesn't eat grain? You've had these kind of dreams before. And then you're trying to explain it. So here's what happened. They're looking at you like you need professional help. And Pharaoh goes, I don't know what this means. I, I got big fat cows getting eaten by skinny cows. I got big fat grain getting eaten by skinny grain. I don't know what it means. And then the cupbearer goes, oh, now my sin is before me. There was this guy. He was in prison. With me, and he told me my dream, and exactly what happened, happened. Remember, Pharaoh, you restored me to my spot in the baker. Well, you hung him. 
He could probably tell you the dream. And so they call for Joseph. And in case you think that this prison was not a prison, the Bible tells us what they had to do for Joseph before he appeared before Pharaoh. He had to wash, he had to shave, and he had to get a new set of clothes. So this prison wasn't one of these white-collar, I-cheated-on-my-taxes prison where I wear a foot anklet and spend my days on Miami Beach kind of prison. This was a pit where when you walk out, you smell and look like prison. And in order to stand before Pharaoh, they had to put a, a new coat on him. They had to shave him. And Pharaoh told him his dream. And Joseph says, I don't know how to interpret dreams, to be honest with you, but God does. And maybe he'll tell me what your dream means. So Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph says, I know exactly what God intends to do. There will be seven years of plenty. There, in fact, there will be seven years of such great abundant harvest. We won't know what to do with it all. But then there will be seven years of famine. And this famine is going to be so severe that we will forget about the plenty. You know what you ought to do, Pharaoh? I mean, it's just spitballing here. I think what you ought to do is during the time of great plenty, save a bit. So that when the famine hits, you've got plenty of food. And you know, again, just spitballing, throwing ideas around. Maybe you should put a guy in charge of that. And that's it. And Pharaoh says, of course, this is a perfect plan. And you're that guy. And he appoints him second in command in Egypt. Now you have to imagine Joseph at this point. Every time this happens, he is favored. What happens at the end of that? Ends up in a pit. Favored by dad, ends up in a cistern. Favored by Potiphar, ends up in jail. Favored by the cupbearer and the bread uh, baker, ends up still in jail. Favored by Pharaoh, I mean, where are we going? At some point, he's looking around. Where's the cistern? There's a jail. There's a pit. There's something I'm going to get chucked into. But that night, he slept in his own bed as second in command in Egypt. Imagine that. He wakes up in prison, smelly, with bugs crawling around his beard. By the end of the night, he's second in command of Egypt, sleeping in his own bed. Favored by God, because God was with him. So during seven years of harvest, seven years of plenty, he saves all of the proceeds of uh, Egypt. He said, in fact, the Bible tells us he saves 20%. One-fifth of the harvest is thrown into store cities. You say, how much did he save? The Bible says we have no idea. He saved so much grain, there was no way to keep track of it all. At the end of seven years, famine hit. And people would come to him and buy grain. And the way the Bible describes it is this. The people started coming to him from all over the world to buy grain. And the people of Egypt included. First they came and bought their grain with their money. And then they spent all their money on their grain. And then they came and bought their grain with their animals. Once they had spent all their animals on grain, they then came to Joseph and said, we've got no money, we've got no animals, will you take our property? And Joseph said, sure. On behalf of Egypt then, Joseph purchases all of the land of Egypt on behalf of Pharaoh. So by the end of the famine, Egypt owns all of the land. The people were then given 20% to farm it for him. Some of the people who came to Egypt to buy grain were who? Jacob's brothers. So they show up to buy grain. Joseph recognizes them immediately. They don't recognize him. And he interrogates them thoroughly. He interrogates them. Who are you? You were spies. And they explain to him all about their, their family. Well, there we got Jacob at home. Uh, Benjamin's still at home. There's one brother. Uh, well, he's no more. 
And he interrogates them and says they're spies and, and they know they're in hot water and so they're talking to each other in Hebrew thinking he doesn't understand them because he was talking to them through an interpreter. And they're saying the reason this is happening is because of what we did to Joseph. And Joseph realizes they carry this guilt for what they did. He imprisons Simeon and sends them home with the grain they purchased and say, do not come back here unless you come back with Benjamin. Why did he say that? He was concerned for Benjamin's safety. If they killed me, what would they do to my brother? Or what have they already done to my brother? Or what will they do to my brother if they find out I'm still alive? They go home and they eat their grain. Simeon's in jail. Jacob's freaking out because the incompetent Reuben can't do anything right. No, seriously, he can't. Judah tries to pitch in and say, no, well, we've got to go buy more grain because soon they eat through all of their grain and they realize they have got to go back. And, and, and so Jacob says, go back and get more grain. And they say, listen, we can't go back there. They, he said, we can't go unless we bring Benjamin. You think Jacob's going to let Benjamin go? No, 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 no way. So Reuben chimes in. Listen, if, if, uh, if, if, if they harm or keep Benjamin, you can have my two sons. Jacob's like, I don't care, Reuben, you're an idiot. That's in the Hebrew. You wouldn't see it in, in, in English. Nobody believes Reuben. Yeah, long story short, Reuben slept with one of Jacob's wives. Nobody likes Reuben. I mean, he got a nice hot dog named after him, but other than that, a little sauerkraut, dill wet. Oh, I'm sorry. Judah pitches in. Now, Judah, there's some respect there. In spite of Genesis 38, Judah says, listen, I got this, Dad. No matter what happens, I got this. Long story short, I got this. And so they send him. So they all go back and they meet up with Joseph. And this time Joseph says, come to my home where you will have lunch. And they come and they bring gifts uh, to Joseph to make up for uh, the misunderstanding with the payment of the grain in the earlier one. And, and they sit down and they eat. And, and Joseph is trying to keep his composure because he sees his brother Benjamin there. And they serves dinner. And everybody's got food. And they look at Benjamin's plate. It's got five times as much food as everybody else. Joseph eats separately, and he's asking again about his dad, asking again what's going on. And finally, he sends them on their way, but this time he puts all of their money back in their bags, and he puts his special silver cup in Benjamin's bag, and they go. And they catch up with them, and they capture them, and Benjamin has a special cup, and he accuses them of stealing from him, and he's going to put them all in prison. And Judah gives an impassioned speech to Joseph, saying, no, 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 keep me, keep me. And this is where Joseph finally realizes his brothers have changed. The murderous brothers are no longer murderous brothers. They figured out they did something wrong. And he reveals himself to his brothers in weeping and sobbing. In fact, it says he was crying so loud they could hear it all throughout the palace. This guy was a loud crier. He's uh, what we call ugly crier. You know, when you're crying and you got mucus coming out your nose and eyes, even out your ears, and you don't even care. He's crying all over the place. Pharaoh is excited to hear the family is here. And then he sends for home, for dad. And he says, you will come and live with me because this, this, this famine is only two years in. There's five more years left of famine, but I will give you a place here. Go home and bring dad. So he sends them home with wagons. And they show up at dad's house with wagons. And they go home and say, listen, Joseph's in Egypt. He's got the land of Goshen for us. We will never want for anything. In fact, Pharaoh even told us, don't even bring your stuff, really, because all of your stuff is lame. You get the best of Egypt's stuff. And the Bible says that Jacob saw the wagons, and he saw his sons, and he, what does it say? It's a weird word for this. Do you know what it says? 
He believed his son was alive. Joseph is alive. Let's go. And they load up and head back. Why did Joseph do all this with his brothers? He wanted to test them. He wanted to know that they had changed. And in their reunion, he tells them, listen, God sent me here to save your life. God sent me here to save life. Later on, he's going to say this way to his brothers. You meant it for harm, but God instead meant it for good. So they all move into Egypt. And they enjoy the fat of the land. They had no bread, but in Egypt they had bread. And so they went and found bread. And they had everything they needed because of the work of God through Joseph's life. Bread becomes a big thing, actually, in Genesis and Exodus. Bread we have here. They needed bread, so they go to Egypt. They leave Egypt in Exodus. And what do they need out in the wilderness? Bread. What do they get? Manna. So God is providing and saving his people. God saves Israel through Joseph's life. God saves Israel because God knew that they were going to be in Egypt. Did you know God had predicted that they would be in Egypt way back in Genesis 15? God told Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, your people will be in captivity for 400 years, but they will one day leave and I will have my, my revenge. God saves Israel. God used Joseph to save Israel because that was always God's plan for God's people and his purpose. When God showed himself to Joseph through, through his dreams, the intention wasn't to make Joseph arrogant. The intention was to reveal to his people, I'm going to save you. I have an, already have a plan to save you, even though you don't even know you need saving yet. When Joseph had those dreams, how long was it till the famine would start? 20 years. The Bible tells us he was 17 when he had the dreams. The Bible tells us that when he was called into Pharaoh's service, the day he was called into Pharaoh's service, he was 30 years old. That means he had spent 13 years in various uh, forms of being in the pit. We don't know how much of that was at Potiphar's, how much of that was in prison. We know he was in the prison for at least at a minimum two years, because that's how long it was from when he interpreted the dreams till he was called out of Pharaoh. So for 13 years of his life, he was with the Lord, but he was either being blessed by God or he was being found himself in the pit. So God used that to save his people. God reveals to his people their plan. God saves Israel. Now, what I want to do for the remaining uh, 45 minutes is I want to show you that the book of Genesis being about God saving his people is actually, like we might say, it's the beginnings because we're going to discover that's what God does. He doesn't just save his people Israel. It, in fact, turns out that he is God who saves. That's what he does. He did save his people Israel, but that's merely because that fits into his grander scheme, his broader scheme to merely save. And God has a plan to save before people even know they need to have uh, salvation. God used Joseph to save Israel because that's always been God's plan to save. God's plan is for God's people to experience his purposes, and his purpose is to save them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God talking to the woman. Your seed will crush his head. He will bruise, bruise his heel. This is this first indication from God that even though we don't know how bad the situation is, he's got a plan to save. 
In Egypt, they needed bread and they got it. In the wilderness, they needed bread and they got it. And in John 6, when they said to Jesus, listen, in the wilderness, we had bread. What do you have to offer? What did Jesus reply? I am the bread of life. Jesus compares himself to that manna. God saves Israel because God saves. God saving is his idea. God saving is his plan. And God saving, he does so for his reasons, which is to glorify him. Let's look at four ways in which God saves from this story. Number one, God's plan is to save us before we need it. Joe, I wrote Joe here because I needed it. Joe has dreams. God reveals his plan to save Israel even before they needed to get No, they needed saving. Let me read from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. This has always been true. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the, listen, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The fullness of time. What does that mean? God's been planning on this forever. The culmination of the history of God's purposes to save is Jesus on the cross and raised from the dead. So when God saves Israel in the life of Joseph, that is merely a precursor a foreshadowing for the salvation we all need. God's been planning for Jesus to save people, his people, those in Christ, from the, as the fullness of time. The culmination of God's work was not Joseph becoming chief head honcho of Egypt. The culmination of God's work is Jesus coming at the fullness of time to save us even before we knew we needed saving. So God has this great plan made known to us throughout the the scripture. Look at Luke chapter 28. Jesus makes it quite clear. Read Moses and the prophets and writings. You will discover Jesus is is coming to save sinners. So God tells us this great plan. What's our response to that? I don't know. What were Joseph's brother's response to the plan? Did they know those dreams where they would bow down to him was actually their salvation? No. What was their response? They threw him into a pit. Remember that? And you're saying, well... Thankfully, I'm so much better than Joseph's brothers. You're not. Let me point out in detail why. Romans chapter 1, we've been there before in Romans. Here's what it says. For although we knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The problem with God is he insists on being God. And humans, when they discover that there is a God who is uh, reports to no one, and he is totally and completely in charge, our job then becomes in our minds, in our brokenness, our sin and rebellion is, you know what, we need a God we can control. So let's make up idols. Let's make up stuff that we can worship, that we can have some control over. So when God reveals to him, to us himself. He is God. When does he do that? Genesis 1 and 2. He says, I am creator of the world. I report to no one. And when I come to save you, there is no other salvation because I am creator of the world. I am the only true God. We decide, you know what? We don't like this idea. We like a God we can control. We don't like God telling us what to do. 
the first thing we want to do when we discover there is a God is we want to kill him. What did we do when he stood before Pilate? What did we scream out? What, of course, you're thinking, no, that was just the Jewish leaders. Because if I was in that crowd, I would have said, no, he's Jesus. Come on. Crucify him. He can make me healthy. He can give me the food I eat. He can make my family work. He can give me the job I won't. And he merely insists on forgiving sins. Give me a break. Kill that guy. That's what they said, and that's what you and I would say. We throw him in the pit, just like Joseph's brothers did. Thankfully, God is what he is, who he is. Verse Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, screaming out loud, crucify him, what did he do? Christ died for us. God's plan was to save us. Our response was crucify him. He died for us anyway. So where did Christ go? Well, he went to the pit, Philippians 2, 5, and 11. Jesus, who was God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be gripped, grasped onto, but he emptied himself and he made himself a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, favored by God as God's son, went into the pit. In this case, though, he went into the pit for us. God saves us by being lowly. Think of Joseph's life. Who are the only, what is the only person who would save the Hebrews from starvation in Egypt? Another Hebrew. The only one who would save these Hebrew men in Egypt is another Hebrew. So when Jacob's sons got to Egypt and they needed saving, the only one who would save them is another Hebrew. And when they got to Egypt, what'd they find? A Hebrew was in charge of Egypt. Jesus saving us is fantastic for this reason. He's the only one who could save us. More importantly, he's the only one who would. No one else would. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved because no one else would want to. He is the only one who would say, not only must that be done, man, let's get it on. I want a piece of that action. I want to get that done to the glory of the Father and the glory of my kingdom. I save sinners in the pit. And he humbled himself. And guess where's the pit? It's where we live. We call it home. If you've called heaven your home for all of eternity, here is a pit. When we get called out of it, what are we gonna, what's it gonna say? Gonna get cleaned up, shaved? Here's an interesting thing we discover at the end. What is it? We get a, get a new robe. We get a white robe. God saves by being lonely, lowly. He is the only one who could save us. Honestly, he's the only one who would. Acts 16, 31, talking to a Philippian jailer, he says, what do I do to be saved? And they all responded to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. When Jacob woke up one morning, he's sitting by his tent and all of a sudden this long caravan of empty wagons show up. They told Jacob, we found Joseph alive. We're free from this famine. We have found life. What did Jacob have to do to save his life? He had to leave that life and go to where his savior was. He had to leave this behind. In fact, remember what Pharaoh said. I mean, you could bring your stuff, I guess. I don't know why you would. 
I don't know why you would bring that stuff with you when everything, the best of Egypt, you own by just walking across the border. But he sent wagons anyway. You want to bring your stuff, whatever. Bring your pictures. Bring your iPad, whatever you got. It's fine. We, he, he looked at the evidence. He looked at the wagons. He looked at the brothers. He listened to what they had to say. And, and it says he, he believed Joseph is alive. And that's why they said to that Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive. And you will be saved. And what did that Philippian jailer say? I believe. You believe Jesus is alive. Close with this. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. These, talking about a whole bunch of people in the Old Testament, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God saves. God shows up and invites us to a better land, his kingdom. Here's a question for us. Is the joy of our hearts that better land? Or are we annoyed that God isn't blessing our land? And that's what I find is the discouragement in my life. It's disbelief that that land is worth waiting for. And I get all riled up because God, you got to make my land the promised land. He says, why in the world would I fix up your pit? I've got a land you're going to and you want me to, to dress up your pit. That's just weird. God shows up and invites us to a better land. And, and, and many of us might have those not-of-this-world stickers on our car. That's a, I love the sticker. I'm not about to make you go take your sticker off. But it should renovate how we think about this world. Not-of-this-world that says, I don't need your pit. I'm going to take the better land. It's worth waiting for. He is alive. I'll leave my stuff here. I don't even need your wagons. In our human condition, in our brokenness, we got to be honest, though, we don't like the idea of a sovereign God. I might recommend this if you really struggle with the notion of God, which we all do in some ways. But maybe you don't like the idea of God. I'm going to, well, I don't want to put too fine a point on it. I'll just say it and you can be annoyed. None of your arguments against God are reasonable. They're just excuses. I can come up with 30 reasons why God doesn't exist. And they're all just excuses to basically say, I don't like the idea that there's a God who's just in charge of everything. Reasonable sentence says, I need to look at the reality around us. There is God, and I need to, to wrestle with the reality that my excuses for God not being around is just, I don't like the idea someone's God other than me. God doesn't need you to believe in him to be the question is, when are we going to realize that we need to align our life with him and we should be asking ourselves that question, what does it mean to live my life knowing God is the creator of the world? If Joseph, a fallen man, offers kindness to his murderous brothers, how much more then will Jesus offer kindness to us? And this is the reality. While we were still sinners, Jesus was on the cross. While we were plotting his demise, Jesus was dying for us. Will we trust him for our salvation?